Welcome back to another episode of Bite Sized Virtue. This is the final episode of season three. We are, well, let me see, when is this going to go live? Well, it's the ninth today, and that's, you know, traditionally when, I mean, we observed Feast of the Epiphany on Sunday, although traditionally the ninth would have been the day for that. Which, you know, if you're looking for the early close to the Christmas season, Epiphany is it. That's, of course, the feast day commemorating the visit of the Magi, the three wise men, as they're also known, to the infant Jesus. Although he probably wouldn't have been an infant. It's it's actually thought by a lot of historians that he probably would have been about one year old um, when that would have happened. But, I, I mean, either way. It's, it's meant to commemorate, really, the the universality of what Jesus came to do. Because, of course, you know, the Magi weren't uh, Jewish. They weren't believers in uh, the, the Jewish religion. <clears throat> they were probably polytheists, actually, if anything. And, uh, or, or nature worshippers, you know, they were astrologers. And yet they perceived this great sign in the heavens, and they came and they found the child Jesus. And so, you know, there's kind of that message that, you know, this isn't just an insular thing that's for a select few. This is really for everyone, the entire world. Anyways, I don't... Well, you know what? Actually, I recorded this reflection kind of... I recorded what's, what I'm about to put into the episode here in advance of recording this intro. But now that I think about it, that, that idea of universality does kind of kind of pertain. Because, you know, like what I'm going to talk about is... It's an attempt to, well, you know what? I mean, let's just dive in because I kind of explain what I'm trying to do at the start of it. And maybe, maybe there, uh, maybe it'll all make sense. Plus that it was a really nice opportunity to test out the, uh, the Rode video mic that my wife got me for Christmas. So let's have a listen. So this episode, just, it's a wrap up. I mean, we're basically trying to somehow wrap up everything we've talked about over the last six episodes. And to do so, I'm going to start by talking about something completely different. What I want to talk about, more than anything actually, is Rogue One. Because I've seen Rogue One, that was one of the things that my wife and I went and saw, along with a couple of her sisters, and the one sister's husband and the other sister's boyfriend. Um, We just went as a group and we went and saw it over the course of the rather extended break that I took for Christmas. I mean... Those of you who are following the site know that apart from posting podcast episodes, I was basically away from the Codex from just before Christmas until just after New Year's, Uh, which, and in a lot of ways, that was really nice, but at the same time, now there's a lot of catch-up to do, so. Anyways, went and saw Rogue One, really enjoyed it, really, really enjoyed it. Might even be my favorite Star Wars movie, I'm not entirely sure, I mean, Empire Strikes Back is still a pretty strong contender for the title, but... Rogue One's, it was awesome. I greatly enjoyed every minute of it and would highly recommend that you go and see it. I think, and I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of people that I've asked really point to K2SO as being like the standout character. And certainly, like, I don't want to diss the droid. He was awesome. Alan Tudyk did a great job giving him character and the 3D animators did a great job bringing him to life. He's a genuinely interesting character, adds a lot to every scene that he's in. But I think my favorite character, characters, really, were Chirrut and Baze. The two, oh yeah, fair warning, um, this is probably not going to be entirely spoiler-free. So if for whatever reason you haven't seen Rogue One yet, you might want to save this episode for later. Because 
just by virtue of some of the stuff that I want to talk about in Rogue One, probably going to get into some spoilers about, you know, particular events in the plot. Okay, Chirrut and Baze. And I think the reason that I like Chirrut and Baze is because... Well, here, let me, let me frame this in the context of my own faith first, and then also, you know, the faith of others around me in my life, like my wife. We're both Catholic, and we're both fairly devout, I guess you could say. I don't know if anyone would ever really apply that to me, but I suppose I'd fit the, the definition, at least. We're Catholic, we try to live out our faith as much as possible, ten Mass weekly, we try to teach our kids the Catholic faith, and... You know, as much as possible, try to cultivate the things that really contribute to a healthy Catholic life. Things like, you know, works of charity where we can, an act of charity, and a prayer life. And I think it's that last point, prayer life, that I really want to focus on. Because, you know, mine has been improving over the last few years. It hasn't always been the best. I'm told that I can pray very eloquently you know, when called upon to do so, to say grace before a meal or something to that effect. And certainly the handful of times where I've, like, thought up reflections for group events, um, you know, people have seemed to come away thinking that I had said something profound, and maybe I did. But prayer's always been a bit of a struggle for me. Um, compounded by the fact that you know, I can look at my wife, and I can look at her prayer life, and I can look at the people she prays for, and I can look at the things that she prays for, and I can see the fruits of prayer very readily. Now, it's kind of funny because, you know, she'll actually say the same thing about her mom that I'm about to say about her, you know, but I look at her prayer life, and I look at, you know, the things that she brings to God in prayer, and I see a fruitfulness there. You know, her prayers, much more visibly than my own, get answered. And it's not to say that my own don't, but Pace Garth Brooks, sometimes the answer is silence. And silence is an answer in and of itself. You know, not to, not to say that it isn't. But you know, she, my wife, prays for particular things to happen and those things seem to transpire. Or, you know, prays for particular people in particular circumstances and their circumstances seem to resolve in exactly the way that is best for them. And, you know, I look at my own prayer life and the intentions that I bring forward, and that isn't always my experience. In fact, it's very rarely my experience. And that's a big challenge for me, certainly. It's just, you know, how does one deal with that silence? And I think this might be one of the reasons I found Rogue One so darn poignant, is because there's a kind of silence in the movie as well. There's no Jedi, you know. This is set just prior to Episode 4, after the Jedi purges of Episode 3. And the Jedi are, you know, Pace Tarkin's words in Episode 4, all but extinct. And this is given pointing illustration on Jeddah, the one planet that they visit, where they meet Baze and Chirrut. Now, Baze and Chirrut were guardians of the Wills, so they were guardians, essentially, of the Jedi Temple. Note that neither of them is really Force-sensitive. Baze, I think, is completely not Force-sensitive. Chirrut has a little bit of Force-sensitivity, but not to the level of a Jedi. And I think the Jedi in Star Wars are really like the priests, or, or maybe even the saints. You know, they are entirely connected to the Force, and there's no 
need for them to have belief in the force because they interact with it directly. They reach out to it, it reaches out to them. They can manipulate it and it can also control their actions. They're connected to it. They have first-hand, direct knowledge of the Force. So for them, belief in the Force is not really a thing that is a thing at all. They don't need to believe in the Force. Chirrut, Baze, um, Jin Erso's parents, and other people in the Star Wars... And we see a little bit of this, too, in uh, the opening sequence of Episode 7. You know, these are people who believe in the Force, but don't have that direct connection to it. They can't manipulate it. It doesn't speak to them in the same way. You know, cheer it maybe a little bit, because he kind of has some additional perception beyond what he should. But for the most part, the Force is... And it's not that the Force is absent from the movie, but the Force is silent for the most part in the movie, and certainly silent to the characters themselves, except for one thing that we'll come to in a little bit. But they still, the characters, some of the characters, still believe in it. And there's this wonderful scene where um, they've been imprisoned, the you know, Bays and Chirrut and Cassian have been imprisoned by Saw Gerrera's gang, and they're in a jail cell, and Chirrut just, he starts repeating over and over, I am one with the Force, the Force is with me, I am one with the Force, the Force is with me, which prompts Baze to actually tease him a little bit. He's just like, are you, are you praying? He's praying. Now, Chirrut's response, I love Chirrut's response, because A, he gives us a little bit of exposition about Baze. Baze Malbus was once one of the most devout of the Guardians. He's angry because he knows it sometimes works. Now, in that particular scene, it isn't the Force that gets them out of the jail cell. It's Cassian and his lockpicks. But there's two kind of... There's another scene a little bit earlier on in the movie that plays with this idea a little bit more when Chirrut takes on a squad of stormtroopers and dispatches them. And then, of course, uh, any, I mean, the way the scene is set up, it kind of plays off of the fact he's blind, the character is blind, and he, uh, the, the scene plays off of, you know, like his heightened sense of hearing more than, you know, anything that overtly suggests the force. But at the same time, he dispatches this squad of stormtroopers with stunning dexterity and an awareness of their positions relative to each other that, you know, hearing alone maybe doesn't entirely explain. Now, a second squad of stormtroopers shows up shortly thereafter and Baze mows them all down with his machine gun. So, you know, in that scene, they, there's a bit of ambiguity to it. But then there's the final scene with Chirrut and Baze. And the thing I like about this scene is that the director, Gareth Edwards, is very quick and very clever to establish beforehand that the stormtroopers, the particular squad of stormtroopers, death troopers actually, uh, Director Krennic's personal squad, Gareth Edwards makes sure to establish their crack shots because he has Chirrut and Baze and a couple of other rebels hunkered down in a bunker, having just fled the death trooper squad. And one rebel sticks his head out for just a couple of seconds and instantly gets mowed down by a single shot from a death trooper. So. It's, it's well understood that the Death Troopers in this scene are, in fact, excellent shots. And then cheer it, because he needs to get to a control panel and flip a particular switch. Steps out of cover, again saying this prayer. I'm one with the Force. The Force is with me. I'm one with the Force. The Force is with me. And he walks out into the middle of the battlefield, 
and the death troopers can't hit him. And this is kind of go this is what I mean when I say that the force isn't absent in the movie. The force isn't silent in the movie. The force is present in Rogue One. And this scene, I think, really cleverly illustrates it. All will be as the force wills it, Chirrut tells us a little bit earlier on in the show. And this scene illustrates that handily. I am one with the force. The force is with me. And he walks out and he reaches the panel and he flips the switch. Now he's ultimately killed by an explosion. You know, the, the, the death troopers shoot the panel and it explodes and that's what kills him. And then just after that, though, there's that beautiful scene where Baze runs out of cover to the fallen Chirrut, and Chirrut consoles Baze. You know, Chirrut's the one dying, but Chirrut is also the one consoling Baze. And that really, in that moment, Baze's own faith comes back, and, you know, he then proceeds to go out in his own blaze of glory. But there's that prayer again. I am one with the Force, the Force is with me. I am one with the Force, the Force is with me. And the Force, you just kind of get the sense that the Force really animates this entire scene. And I guess, in a way, you could kind of think of that as being an explanation for why the stormtroopers are such selectively terrible shots. I mean, obviously, it's narratively convenient that they are. It wouldn't do any good to have the heroes get mowed down mid-mission. But we can kind of now understand it as not just being that the stormtroopers are terrible shots, but that this is the Force acting out. Whenever we see that happening, this is the Force acting, enacting its will in the world. There's a prayer, and I say this prayer a lot. It's a very short prayer. It's called the Jesus Prayer. It's two lines. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's slightly different, you know, there's a few different versions of the prayer if you Google around for it, or a few different formulations of it, but they all follow that same basic idea. You invoke the name of Jesus, and then you ask on mercy for yourself, a sinner. The text changes a little bit, but the meaning stays the same. It's a wonderful prayer for meditation. It's a wonderful prayer for breathing exercises. In fact, there's a recommended breathing exercises uh, that accompanies the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, you inhale as you say that, and then have mercy on me, a sinner. You exhale as you say that. The idea that you're breathing in the Lord, breathing in Jesus, and breathing out sin, bringing in what is good, and exhaling what is not good. And, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the Force and the various religions that have cropped up around the Force in Star Wars lore are not Christianity, but there's... I just couldn't help but making that connection in mind. I am one with the Force, and the Force is with me. Such a simple prayer, two lines, repeated over and over again, almost as, you know, like just for cheer it, really just this almost unconscious thing that, you know, he does as easily as he breathes. And that's, people who really practice the Jesus prayer, that's kind of one thing they tell you is that, you know, eventually you should get to the point in saying this prayer where it's just your discipline and, you know, your every breath is this prayer. And just this whole, seeing this all play out on the screen, like I say, it was really poignant for me and I really connected with it because... I'm very much those people on the screen, you know? There are some other people in my life who are, for the purposes of this analogy, the Jedi, you know? They may not be able to, you know, wield the truly miraculous powers of, like, bilocation or levitation or, you know, all the other stuff that the saints have done over the years. But, you know, for, you know, I can look at certain people in my life and I can just be 
awed at the fact that God's action, God's response to prayer is so transparently evident in their life. I see this in my wife. She sees it in her mother. I see it in her mother too, for that matter. And then there's me, who has to contend with the silence. And so I look at these characters in Rogue One who, they don't have the force. They don't have any ability to manipulate anything using the force. But they're still willing to make themselves agents of the force's will. And by their actions, by their willingness, in their willingness to be an agent of the force, out of their willingness, based thereupon, to take an action that is necessary in the moment. The force is able to enact its own will towards a particular good end. Now, I mean, that's attended by great personal sacrifice in a lot of cases. And you know what? That's kind of the truth of Christianity as well. A lot of times, if you're going to make yourself a willing agent of God and go out and do his will in the world, it's going to end very poorly for you, at least in temporal terms. I mean, there's a lot of dead Christians throughout history. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact that, you know, the necessary action, the right action can and often does lead to something that, at least for the person engaging in that action, is, shall we say, often harmful or deleterious entirely, the fact that it is the necessary action and the willingness of that person to act on it has a certain righteousness and a certain power to it, a certain compelling nature to it. And it doesn't really change. The fact that the action may lead to harm doesn't really change. If it's the right action to do, well, that's not changed by the fact that, you know, it could have a poor outcome for the person who undertakes it. Sometimes we're just called to sacrifice. Sometimes we're just called to give up literally everything because that is what is actually necessary. And it got me thinking about the eight virtues for a little bit too, because you know, we were, we've been talking around the idea of the virtue of spirituality. We've been talking around the idea of this virtue that is supposed to be the synthesis of all three principles, which means, I guess, in a certain way that, you know, genuine spirituality, a synthesis of all three of the principles that all of the virtues are based upon. So I guess in a way, spirituality can kind of be thought of as a synthesis of all of the other virtues in their entirety. And I got to asking myself, like, is it possible to practice the virtue of spirituality without practicing any of the other virtues or in a way that requires you to contravene or, or, well, no, let's not, let's not use that terminology. Is it possible to be a follower of the virtue of spirituality while with respect to every other virtue, one chooses to act in an unvirtuous manner? You know, can you be, can you genuinely espouse spirituality, but be cowardly? and unjust and dishonorable? I suppose, broadly speaking, we could ask that question about any of the virtues. Can you genuinely follow the virtue of compassion without ever being willing to make sacrifices, without being, you know, while being dishonorable, while being unjust? Is that possible? While being dishonest? Can you be honorable but dishonest? 
I think that, and you know, I, and I mean, I think Deathblade Dragon talked a little bit about this too. I think, regardless of which belief system you're going to adopt, you know, regardless of which belief system you happen to hold, <laughs> there are people who put down Jedi as their religion. There are many people in the Ultima community who don't identify with any organized religion, but really do identify with the eight virtues. There's people like me, Christian, Catholic. I've met Muslim Ultima fans, met Hindu Ultima fans. There's, what's that line from the epistle of James? Faith without works is dead. And I think whether we're going to look at the eight virtues, and especially like spirituality as a synthesis of the other virtues, whether we're going to look at Rogue One and the the belief in the Force, whether we're going to look at, you know, my own Catholicism, there's always something that emerges out of all of those. And that is that it's not enough to hold those beliefs as a purely intellectual exercise. It's not enough to have faith and faith alone. It's not enough to have belief and belief alone if that never translates into action. This is especially true, uh, I mean, you see this again, you see this a lot, this concept come up a lot in Christianity. You see this concept illustrated poignantly, like I said, in Rogue One. The force in Rogue One has its will, but it still needs someone, need might be the wrong word, but someone still has to be its agent. We see this in Christianity too, you know? God has a plan for the world. But human beings need to be willing to be his agents in time. It's not that, you know, and I mean, it's, again, it's not within the lore of Star Wars that the Force probably couldn't just, I mean, clearly we know the Force can just do its own thing and impact the physical realm of that universe when it so chooses. The conception of Anakin Skywalker comes readily to mind. In like manner, it's not that it's not possible for God to just reach down and manipulate things on his own, but then equally, that's also not the point. You know, the point is we're supposed to relate to that. We're supposed to be in relation with each other. We're supposed to reach out to each other. We are supposed to exercise that agency of God's will, just like Chirid would exercise the agency of the Force's will. Because that's what's really desired. You know, it's it's not the actual action itself. It's that agency and that relationship. We've been talking about this anima technica vacua, and just the, the way that it is so, more than anything else, it's just so isolating. You know, that's, that's, I mean, the human being is a social animal. So what is the most, so, so when is our soul at its most vacuous? It's when we're isolated. You know, that is, that is when we are our most empty. That is, that is the empty technical soul right there is, you know, just where via technology, we're no longer actually connected to people. We might have a simulacrum of technology or of connection, but we don't actually have connection, you know. The, what's the difference between a Facebook friend and a real friend? Well, the difference is actually huge, despite the fact that we might use the same word, friend, to describe both connections in our lives. 
the Facebook friendship is a pseudo connection at best. Can't compare it to a real life friendship, to actually being physically present, emotionally present to someone in a way that is just simply not possible via the medium of Facebook. And I think maybe that's the antidote too to this anima technica vacua. I think maybe that's this antidote to this sense of just, you know, casting about and and it's not that it's easy, you know. I mean, it's easy to talk about, but it's not easy to do. Reaching out is is terrifying. I mean, even something like starting the podcast, you know, coming up on two years ago, that was that was a big thing. I'm I hate speaking in front of people, or I did, and yet I'm a scout leader. I run a podcast, two podcasts actually, and I'm not saying that that's, you know, the end of it. I mean. Still, like, there's just that sense of you have to be willing to to put yourself out there, to 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 connect, to be willing to connect with people in ways that yeah aren't terribly comfortable. You do have to be willing to go outside of yourself because if you can, well, I can bring about some really amazing things, you know. And this is especially true. You know, I mean, this is true enough when it comes to the podcast. The podcast has been amazing. The response from the community has been amazing. Did it with my scouting podcast. That's been wonderful. But more than that, beyond that, when you're willing, even if you don't feel ready, even if you don't feel you necessarily understand how you're going to do something, but you're willing to put yourself out there because it's the right thing to do, because it's what needs to happen in that moment, that willingness to engage in agency of a will that isn't necessarily your own. That's powerful. And amazing things can happen from that. I mean, that's where, you know, one could point to so many different charitable organizations that have emerged in the world. One can point to, oh God, you know, even something like the Beaver board games. You know, I had one kid made one quick suggestion. It took him like three seconds to say it. I think it would be really neat for us to make board games. It took me a couple more seconds to write that down on a sheet of paper. And out of that, just an amazing experience emerged. I had no idea how to design a board game. I had no hope, really. Or I had no expectation that anything would come of the email that I sent to Ian Fraser. And yet the most amazing thing emerged out of that. And it was hugely impactful to a number of kids, my own included. You know, my daughter still toodles around with different board game ideas on a monthly basis. So, I think if there's a lesson here, it's that to live out spirituality to to combat the anima technica vacua, to genuinely strive for virtue in your life, there has to be a willingness to act, to act for the good, to act as an agent of the will of what is good. And out of that, tremendous, tremendous things can flow. And you know, really, I think that's enough said, at least for now. So thank you for listening to another season of Bite Sized Virtue. I hope that you found it uh, informative. I hope you found the reflections helpful and meaningful. I wish you all the best in 2017. 
And I look forward to bringing you another season of Bite Size Virtue a little later this year when Lent kicks off in March. But until then, and until next time, be virtuous. Virtuous.